0: And this morning, congregation will be considering a passage from Holy Scripture that is found in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be reading uh, from verse 19 through 25 in your Pew Bible. You can find that on page 1380. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also be reading from what we receive and believe to be a faithful summary of the Word of God, the Belgian Confession. Uh, this morning, we find ourselves at Article 26, and in your forms and prayers, a book in the pew you can find that on page 180. Making our way through these various articles we come to an article that concludes the section that deals with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. A transition will be made in Article 27 uh, to beginning uh, what we call theologically uh, ecclesiology, the doctrines of the church. Uh, So we come this morning to an article that concludes the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as far as his accomplishment of redemption. And the next week, Lord willing, we'll begin considering the result of the work of Christ, uh, that is the existence of the Christian church. Uh, We read this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, Uh, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the vow that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Article 26, a rather lengthy article entitled, The Intercession of Christ. We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. He therefore was made man, uniting together the divine and human natures, so that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty. Otherwise, we would have no access." But this mediator whom the Father has appointed between himself and us ought not terrify us by his greatness, so that we have to look for another one according to our fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us, and he made himself completely like his brothers." Suppose we had to find another intercessor who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies. And suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power, who has as much of these as he who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who has all power in heaven and on earth. And who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son?" So then sheer unbelief has led to the practice of dishonoring the saints instead of honoring them. That was something the saints never did nor asked for, but which in keeping with their duty as appears from their writings, they consistently refused. We should not plead here that we are unworthy, for it is not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Since the Apostle, for good reason, wants us to get rid of this foolish fear, or rather this unbelief, he says to us that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in all things, that he might be a high priest who is merciful and faithful to purify the sins of the people. For since he suffered being tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. And further, to encourage us more to approach him, he says, since we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, Who has entered into heaven, we maintain our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to have compassion for our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things just as we are, except for sin. Let us go then with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in order to be helped. The same apostle says that we have liberty to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us go then in the assurance of faith." Likewise, Christ's priesthood is forever. By this he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, who always lives to intercede for them. What more do we need? For Christ himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my Father but by me. Why should we seek another intercessor? Since it has pleased God to give us his Son as our intercessor, let us not leave him for another, or rather seek without ever finding For when God gave him to us, he knew well that we were sinners. Therefore, in following the command of Christ, we call on the Heavenly Father through Christ, our only mediator, as we are taught by the Lord's Prayer, being assured that we shall obtain all we ask of the Father in his name. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has often been said, and I trust that you will agree with this statement, both on the basis of, for example, the Psalms and also the basis of our own experience. It has often been said that the Christian life at times lives on the peaks of the mountaintops of faith and other times walks through the valleys of doubt and temptation. And I'm not sure which one you find yourself in this morning. Some of you, I would dare suppose, are on a mountaintop of faith filled with joy, filled with confidence, filled with a spirit of optimism. Others of you might be in a valley, a valley caused perhaps by sin, perhaps by discouraging news, perhaps by uh, the weaknesses of health or the lack of strength. And, and no doubt there are a variety of positions in between uh, the pinnacle of the mountaintop and the depths of the valley think of the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we had the opportunity to remember Easter and the resurrection of the Lord. And we might think that a week out, the disciples would have been characterized by hope and by strength and by an optimistic spirit. You might think that we would find the disciples ready to go and, spiritually speaking, conquer the world. And yet, when we look, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 36 and following, as Jesus encounters uh, His disciples, He finds them terrified. He finds them afraid. He finds them huddled together with all sorts of doubts, with all sorts of questions. Now, we might think most specifically of Thomas saying to himself and to others, unless I see with my own eyes and unless I touch with my own hands uh, the wounds Of the risen Jesus Christ, I will not believe. Uh, Notice then also as you follow that narrative that Jesus Christ comes to his disciples who are, you might say, living in the valley of doubts and fears post resurrection. And he speaks the most compassionate word, he speaks the most tender word. He asked them uh, in Luke 24, verse 37 Why are you afraid? Why are you troubled? Not because he doesn't know, but because he seeks to minister to them in the midst of their being terrified and frightened. And he presses it further and he says, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now answer that question yourself within your own mind. Why why do doubts arise within our hearts? When we answer that question through the lens of Scripture, we have to at some level say, well, doubts arise within our hearts because of the own weaknesses of our faith. Perhaps it could also be said this way, doubts arise within our hearts when we look more at circumstances than Christ. Doubts and fears arise within our hearts when we look more to ourselves than to Christ. And so the author to the Hebrews as well as the author of our Belgian Confession, and we readily acknowledge that the first is inspired and infallible and inerrant. The second, we believe, is a faithful summary. But they both unite their voices together, and they speak to the doubting Christian. As that doubting Christian may be looking this way and that way, trying to find some comfort and some consolation, and and, and they both say, our comfort and our consolation ultimately is found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have fellowship with God. And so we want to consider this theme this morning, our belief concerning fellowship with God. Noticing, first of all, the avenue for that fellowship, secondly, the interaction in that fellowship, and then thirdly, the confidence in that fellowship. So our as individual Christians, but also as a community of Christians, as a Christian congregation, uh, our belief concerning fellowship with God, the avenue, the interaction, and the confidence. Uh, By avenue, a synonym might be a path or a way. How is it that we can have fellowship with God. How is it that we can have communion with God? And before we begin to unpack that point with two subpoints, noticing that it is an exclusive avenue and it is a mediatorial avenue, I just want to say that when we when we understand Christian salvation, now there are two dangers I believe that we need to avoid in relationship to what salvation is: Christian salvation when we think Even in the reading of the law, when the Lord God says that I am the Lord your God, we ought not think too narrowly of salvation. Sometimes individuals have this idea that salvation is merely escaping the the horrors of hell. Certainly involved and included in salvation is the deliverance from the wrath of God. But that is not all that salvation is. On the other hand, there's a danger of thinking of salvation uh, too broadly, perhaps. Uh, And by the broadness, losing the central focus of reconciliation with God. And so you'll hear individuals talk about uh, the renewal of earth or the, uh, the, the bringing of the claims of Christ into every sphere of activity underneath this sun. Uh, and the danger is that if we think of salvation as simply uh, the renewing of this cosmic creation, uh, there also might be the tendency to lose the central focus. Salvation is this, according to Jesus Christ, that they may know you. This is eternal life, he says in John 17, that they may know you. And that word know is this intimate relationship, this fellowship, this walking with God, this communing with God, this fellowshipping with God. A communing and a fellowshipping that begins now in this earth and in this life, but ultimately awaits the culmination in the life that is to come. Well, how is it that we can have and maintain fellowship with God? That points out that this is an exclusive avenue. And this question, how can we have fellowship with God, needs to reckon with the reality of sin and also the impact of sin. And I trust that our children, they learned this from a young and a tender age. Adam and Eve, they walked with God. They, they talked with God. They fellowshiped with God. But then sin entered into the picture, and there was the disruption of that harmony. So that Adam and Eve uh, ran trembling from the presence of God. But God came and sought out man. And previous articles have dealt with this within the Belgian Confession. But God came in His grace and in His mercy uh, through the provision of an atoning sacrifice, provided an avenue for there to be reconciliation. And we just want to point out uh, two truths as we move somewhat rapidly through this first subpoint of the exclusive avenue for fellowship. That is, this, first of all, that God provides the avenue. So many world religions and so many human persons are consumed with all sorts of discussion and activity of how man can find his way back to God, how man or human beings can ascend and find some type of spiritual peace or utopia. But the gospel does not begin with human beings. The gospel begins with God. The gospel is not good news about what you can do or what I can do or what we collectively together can do. The gospel is not about some social evolutionary process of humanity by which we are going to eradicate all that ails us. The gospel is about what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And our historical confessions help us in maintaining this biblical emphasis. What is the good news? The good news is that God was in Christ reconciling sinners unto himself to restore and to maintain this fellowship. Uh, The second point that we would emphasize is that, yes, God has established this way of reconciliation, but it is only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this smacks right in the face of our culture's pluralism. Pluralism would say there are many, many ways to find one's way back to the God or to the higher being or to the greater object. But the Word of God and the Christian preaching that is based upon the Word of God uh, gives the wonderful proclamation there is a way to be reconciled with God. But there is only one way and so on the one hand we are very very thankful that we can say there is a way for sinful human beings including yourself and myself to find fellowship with God but we're also obliged to proclaim to whomever will hear these words there is only one way an exclusive way and that way is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ According to John 14, verse 6, it is straightforward and clear. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the way because of his mediatorial position and his mediatorial work. Now, much could be said and much has been said about the mediator of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that our article this morning references his two real natures and the union of those two natures, we have considered those wonderful truths in recent weeks and time demands that we move on. What I want to draw your attention to this morning, underneath this mediatorial avenue, is the attitude of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, towards those people whom he represents. From all of eternity in the decree of election, the Son of God received a people gifted Unto himself, whom he loved. And that's the main point of the pastoral labors this morning. And it's a remarkable statement uh, that the author of the Belgian Confession makes when he says, No one on earth or in heaven loves us more than Jesus Christ does. And I want to ask you this morning do you believe that? No one on earth loves us more than Jesus Christ does. No one in heaven loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Now, of course, there's a historical context for this statement and for this article against the Roman Catholic practice of intermediaries, whether they be Mary, whether they be other saints. And the author to the Belgic Confession just wipes the slate clean by, says, all of that complete foolishness. Jesus Christ loves us more than anyone else. Jesus Christ loves us more than Mary does. And Mary's impotent when it comes to providing some type of substitutionary atonement and some type of intercessory work we don't need mary we don't need the saints we don't need anyone else to establish and to maintain this fellowship other than the lord jesus christ but but doubt still fill our minds is, is it really true that jesus christ loves me more than anyone else uh, and, and so our author gives various arguments we're not going to go through all of them But the Bible says very clearly, John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And and we just considered a big week ago, Good Friday, Jesus Christ in the action of laying down his life interceded for that repentant thief, and he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And in the whole time, what was Jesus Christ actually doing? He was laying down his life for his friends. And he laid down his life for his friends who had been eternally given to him, even while they were yet enemies. And if, the Bible also argues, if Christ loved us while we were still enemies, now being reconciled to God. Now you can think underneath God's good providence, many of us have had and continue to have individuals who love us. You can think of parents who love us, grandparents who love us, spouses who love us. And I know that all those relationships, because of the impact of sin in your own experience, may not have been ideal, and indeed may have been far from ideal. But there are people who love us, but no one loves us more than Jesus Christ. As we transition into our second point, I just want to make one practical point of application, and perhaps it's especially for the young people, teenagers, but all of us at times can wrestle with a healthy sense of self-worth. And the sad and the tragic thing is, is that at times people look to unhelpful things unhealthy things for their sense of self-worth oh if only this person or if only that person will give me the attention that i crave oh if only uh this the social network will grant me the acceptance that i crave And, and and so we could talk about codependency and all types of unhealthy relationships but just simply this for this morning if you're looking for affirmation of your self-worth. As a Christian, look no further than to say to yourself, no one loves me more than Jesus Christ, my Savior. Well, Jesus Christ, of course, accomplished that which no one else could accomplish, Reconciliation between God and man. As we transition into our second point, P.Y.D. Young writes, we must realize that God has opened the way to himself in Christ alone. And that gives us this interaction and fellowship through prayer and through intercession. Just a brief word here about prayer, because our author brings it up in Article 26. Uh, And when you think about the interceding work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are drawn to the aspect of prayer. What prayer is, is simply Communion with God, a, a holy conversation with God, communication, and communication, verbal communication. Now, not in earthly relationships, of course, there's also nonverbal communication, but communication is essential to a healthy relationship. And, and so, when we speak about fellowship between God and the Christian, this fellowship is experienced uh, through the activity of, of prayer. Do you pray? I, I trust that you do, and if you don't, I would encourage you to pray. But I also want to just use that question uh, as kind of a, a springway, uh, not to a consideration of prayer in and of itself, but to a consideration of the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ in relationship to pray. If your answer is, which I trust it is, yes, I pray, then my next question is, how do you pray? And I'm not asking you, you know, if, if, are you able to articulate a large theological terminology in your prayers. I'm not asking you for how much time you say, "Oh well, I, I pray 15 minutes, morning, noon and night, and I use all of the theological uh, verbs and nouns that I can think of. The question is simply this: Do you pray with confidence? Do you pray with a holy boldness? Upon what basis? I mean, think about it, to enter into the presence, spiritually speaking, of the one only true God, infinitely holy and majestic, in whose presence the angels have to cover their eyes, figuratively speaking, and to say, Father, would you forgive me for my sins and would you give me my daily bread? And would you answer my petitions? And would you bless me with grace and mercy? Those are bold things to ask for. Upon what basis do we ask them? Well, the basis is only the interceding work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that interceding, and by interceding we mean going between two parties... In that interceding, it's not as if the the Son tries to somehow manipulate the Father. It's not as if the Son whispers in the Father's ear, well, look how earnest they are in their prayer, Father. Or look how diligent they are in their prayer, Father. Or look how wonderfully worded they are in their prayer, Father. No, the interceding work of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, Father, I have satisfied for them. I have laid down my life for them. I have provided all that is necessary for the establishment and the maintenance of this relationship of fellowship. You might say, with with holy reverence, uh, the Son presents the wounds in His hands and the wounds in His feet and the wounds in His side, and He says, Everything has been satisfied. It is finished. Now on the basis of that satisfaction, our prayers are presented. And when you look at it from that perspective, you can see how absolute foolish it would be to present a prayer on the basis of a saint or to present a prayer on the basis of our own self-worth. I mean, who, when you step back and think about it, who wants to compare, well, Father, I tried really hard this day, so hear my prayer. Who wants to compare that to, I present my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ and Him alone? 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 uh, emphasizes, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So our presence, our appeal, our presentation between ourselves and God is not based upon our own dignity. Where where, where does that phrase come from? Our own dignity. Because there is, and if we're honest with ourselves, at least if I'm honest with myself, uh, there is a a little Pharisee who lives in my heart. Well, maybe not so little. Little. Isn't there a, a tendency if we're honest with ourselves? Don't we have to fight against this? We, we come into the presence of God and we would never verbalize it audibly. But are we ever tempted to say, oh, I thank you that I'm not like other men? I thank you that I'm not like that neighbor guy? Or my, my classmate? Or, th- or that person that I read about in the news or hear about on tv why i do this that and the other thing i belong to the conservative church i go twice on sunday and every special day service i i give a fair portion of all that i receive all of that if it's understood rightly certainly wonderful characteristics of a faithful christian life but the danger is is that we then look to that and we would never again to say audibly express it but in our mind we think lord on the basis of that hear my prayer and the author of the hebrews and scripture in its entirety and our Belgian confession just wipes all that away and says, no, that is not the basis, and that cannot be the basis through which we approach God in our interaction. Christ and Christ alone. And and for us as a congregation, this has to be more than just the most popular contemporary Christian music of the last decade. It has to be more than just a song that we sing at the youth group functions. It has to be the very heartbeat of our spiritual life. Christ alone, Christ alone, His merits alone, His intercessory work alone. That's why we read for our text of pardon from Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession." For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. I just want to pause there and say whatever, whatever difficulty, whatever temptation, whatever trial, whatever perplexity within life, it's wonderful to know, it's comforting to know, it's an encouraging to know that our mediator understands I would dare say all of us have had the frustrating experience of talking with someone who did not understand us, who did not understand what we were facing, who did not understand what we were feeling, who did not understand. And maybe their failure to understand was evident in how they responded to us. And maybe we walked away from that conversation and we thought to ourselves or we said to one another, they just don't get it. They just don't understand. Jesus Christ understands. He understands the the trials that the elderly face. He understands the trials that the teenager faces. He understands the temptations. And we ought to be encouraged not to hide them nor to deny them, But in our prayer and in our interaction with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit, to be honest and say, this is the trial, this is the temptation, this is the fear, this is the doubt, this is the difficulty, this is the disappointment. Because our high priest can sympathize with an attitude of compassion and with the knowledge of Uh, of a personal experience. He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore, because of that truth, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, that gives us a confidence that we consider within our third point. The confidence, this confidence, this assurance, this spiritual boldness the ground or the basis, first of all, we have to state this negatively. The confidence is not in ourselves. And, and, and you'll notice that our author, he brings up, in the Belgian Confession, he brings up this important point uh, whereby individuals at times complement themselves by the deprecation of themselves. On, on page 181, you don't have to... Uh, find the reference. I'll read it for you, but if you want to find it, uh, it's the third paragraph down. We should not plead here that we are unworthy, for it is not a question of offering of prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. We should not plead here that we are unworthy. You know, there is the temptation in the Christian life, And this may sound shocking when it first comes out. There's the danger in the Christian life to overemphasize our depravity, to overemphasize it in the sense that we mischaracterize it. Almost that we take confidence in our knowledge of our complete and utter depravity. And there's individuals and they walk around and say, well, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. Well, you need to stop and consider that for a minute. In and of yourself, yes, definitely unworthy. But what about your identity in Christ. Think of how the Apostle Paul refers to the churches, even the church, for example, of, of Corinth, which had all sorts of issues, to the saints, to the saints. And I want to confess, it, it's, I believe it's becoming a pandemic, maybe, uh, among leaders in the church to bemoan the sad state of affairs in the church, to bemoan the the decline of the church, whether it be numerically, whether it be in relationship to the conduct of the church. And certainly we we need to identify when there are spiritual problems and concerns, but we also need to always remember that the church, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the bride of Christ. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, she is perfect and she is righteous. You know, and there are times... And it's no one here on the ministerial staff in connection with Covenant Reformed Church. I don't want you to go home and think, oh, I wonder who he's talking about. But in a broader context, ministers will get together and say, oh, the church this and the church that and on and on. Uh, Imagine for a moment that you were part of a a wedding party. And for you, men, it might be easier to bear with the analogy. Imagine that you are, you know, one of the bridegrooms. The, the best man and imagine you as the best man uh, as you were there with your good friend who was going to be married imagine if you pointed out all of the flaws of his soon to be wife imagine you said oh, I'm here to be your best man but you notice your future wife's her hair didn't quite turn out this morning I don't know what she did you know w- with her appearance but boy just doesn't look quite right I doubt you'd be the best man for very long. And it all gets down to this sense of how do we understand our own identity? Yes, of course, in and of ourselves, completely unworthy. But Christ loves us more than any creature on earth and in heaven, and in Him, in Him, there is a sense of worth. Because in Him, I am righteous. And not just partially righteous, but perfectly righteous. Through His work, all of my sin has been dealt with definitively once and for all. And through Him, I have a perfect righteousness. And, and, and this in the positive sense. And, and so maybe, especially when we find ourselves in the valleys of the Christian life, we, we don't look internal, we don't look at ourselves, and we don't look at the circumstances, but we ought to fix our eyes, and this is what the author of the Hebrews is trying to emphasize, fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ and Him alone, because He is our confidence. And then fixing our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be reminded that we are assured that we shall obtain all we ask of the Father in His name. And so if you go back to the opening analogy uh, of the disciples immediately post-Easter, uh, as they huddled themselves together, as they were filled with fear, and as they were filled with a uh, uh, lack of understanding, what was the factor that was contributing to their lack of understanding? They were looking at circumstances, and they were looking at themselves, and they were looking at what had happened, and they had lost sight Of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is fellowship with God through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. That is the only way that there is fellowship, but that is the certain way in which there is fellowship. And and so the simple call of the gospel again uh, this morning uh, is to believe, to believe on the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, And to put all of our trust upon Him. Not saints, not intermediaries, not ourselves. Nothing except the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't put your faith and trust in Him, then I need to lovingly but boldly tell you, you are never going to find anything else that can work. You can find everything in this world. And you can put your trust in it it will fail you. It will fail you 100% of the time. On the contrary, Christ will never fail you. He will never, ever fail you. So put your trust in Him exclusively. And then go home and go through life comforted. Telling yourself, you know, just like, a young couple who are falling in love right? they, they, they go around with a with a smile and a spring in their step he loves me or she loves me you know and those of us who are older we, we look and we smile and we say oh, isn't that nice now not in a silly mere sentimental way but as christians go forth on this day and in the week that lies ahead and in the month and in the year with a spiritual Spring in your steps, saying, He loves me. Jesus Christ loves me. The only begotten Son of the Father loves me. And how much does He love me? More than anyone else in this world. More than anyone else in heaven. He loves me. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed. For behold, what manner of love is this? that you have given us your only begotten Son uh, as an interceding mediator, that we might have a perfect righteousness and thereby also have uh, a bold confidence, not in and of ourselves, but in his work. And so, Father, we ask that the experience of our fellowship with you might be uh, encouraged and fostered by an understanding uh, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Father, we ask that you would Increase our faith, draw our eyes of trust off of that which we are tended and tempted to put it in, and may we focus exclusively upon the finished work and the perfect person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we also present this prayer. Amen.